0: All right, hey listen, find your sermon outline in your bulletin there. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, please, Matthew 2. You'll find that on page 1497 in that book rack Bible, 1497. So we're in this exposition of the book of Matthew, we're going verse by verse to this book, it's a great book to begin in the Advent season, that's where we've been the last few weeks, and Matthew's been introducing to us the king the righteous king, the true king. And so far in this series, we've noted that Jesus, the true king, is the one who calls us out of darkness and into His mission. We saw it in the the preview message of this series, looking at the life of Matthew himself. We've learned that Jesus is the rightful heir of David's throne through the genealogy of Christ mentioned in chapter 1. We found that Jesus is the God-man, that He's God in human flesh, and Matthew wants his readers to know that, and today we come to the fact that Matthew wants to help us see that Jesus is the one to whom we owe all true worship. He is the object of our worship, and we're going to see this in the lives lives of the Magi who came visiting looking for Christ. So our text today is going to show us different kinds of people and the people that look for Jesus. So follow along as I read chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and see if you can find some people in this text that are looking for Jesus. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. The star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Well, this is an amazing text, and I guess my fear in a text like this is because of its familiarity, we might lose a little bit of the impetus, a little bit of the strength behind it. So I want you to listen carefully this morning for what I want to show you as distinct groups or different types of people who look for Jesus and the entire text kind of unveils these different groups. And you see them there in the text. I'm not going to be shy about who they are. First, we've got the Magi. They're looking for the child. Uh, Herod's also looking for the child. And there's a group of religious people there that are also anticipating and looking for the child too. So what I'd like us to do today is we look at these different types of people in the text, I'd like us to consider some timeless truth, I'd like us to think about what these people mean to us and where do we see our lives in them, and maybe as we go through this text today we'll identify our own lives, some of us, uh, may all of us, with, uh, with one of these three different groups of people. Or individuals. The first group is obvious to us. Uh, they're featured in verses 1 and 2, in verses 9 through 11. And here I'm just going to suggest that there are some people that look for Jesus and don't stop looking until they find him. Okay, that's one group of people. People that look for Jesus and won't stop looking till they find him. Um, and I'd like to highlight, and of course we're talking about the Magi here, I'd like to talk about the fact that these are the kind of people that often we wouldn't expect. I meet people all the time that say something like, if you would have talked to me a year ago and told me that at this time, a year from then, I would be following Jesus, I would have told you you're crazy. Uh, But here I am, and I'm a follower of Jesus. They didn't expect to be following Christ, but here they are. They're following Christ. I've also spoken to people who say things like, and I've said things like this myself, Oh, so-and-so over there, my work associate, the people in my neighborhood, people I work with, people I know in the community, that's a guy or that's a gal that will never come to faith. And we sort of write people off because we assume that they are so distant from God, so far from God. Uh, Well, these are people that we might compare to uh, the Magi. Uh, Let's talk about the Magi for just a minute. Uh, The Greek word magoi, it's the word that we get the word magician from. And there's lots of conjecture about who these guys really were. Uh, were they astronomers? Were they astrologers? Were they mystics? Were they really kings? Some translations use the word king. Uh, we say the wise men. The reality is, we really don't know much about these people at all, except what the biblical text says. They came from the east, they traveled west, they saw something in the stars that made them inclined to pick up from where they were and move out. Hate to burst anybody's bubbles today, but most of the time when we think of the wise men, we think of three individuals, <laughs> you know, working their way, across. you've seen the Christmas card, oh yeah, there they are, there's a the wise men. But that's, that's probably not the way it was. Uh, most likely there would have been an entourage of people traveling for months, maybe even more than a year, scholars are really not quite sure. If they came from Persia or Babylon, it would have been many, many months of travel, and so they pick up from where they are, they make their way there, and, and it's interesting. Let's just stop for a minute and think about, again, what Matthew's purpose here in this gospel is. In these first few chapters of his book, he's, he's wanting to reveal Christ. He's wanting to introduce Jesus to his Jewish friends. And here in this sort of ironic twist, Matthew is, is pointing out the fact that the reception that the king of the Jews received when he made his entrance to the world was first by shepherds, lowly outcasts, as they were. Luke's gospel talks about the shepherds. And by these magi, uh, perhaps Gentile, most likely Gentile, perhaps familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. Some believe that if they came from Persia or Babylon, they were familiar, or maybe descendants of the Hebrews that stayed in that area and did not come home with Zerubbabel and uh, Ezra and Nehemiah in, when the exile under King Cyrus' rule were allowed to go back to Jerusalem. We really don't know who they were, but we know this. They came. They decided to come, and they were relentless in their pursuit. Now, let me just give you, these are not in your notes, but you might want to jot them down. Three things about Folks like these that we're talking about. People that look for Jesus won't stop looking until they find Him. Number one, their search may have begun in the realm of interests and passions that don't seem connected to God or His ways. Uh, They got interested by looking at the stars. Now again, I said we don't know if these guys were astronomers, which were studiers of the stars, or if they were astrologers, which were more mystical, more looking for divine truth in the heavens. Um, we, we really don't know. And furthermore, we don't know what this star might have been. Some have predicted maybe it was a comet. Uh, some maybe speculate that it were two planets like Saturn and Jupiter aligning at the right time of year to make this one brilliant light. Uh, Johannes Kepler, the 16th century uh, astronomer and astrologer, he had suggested, his theory was, that this was a supernova that lasted for a period of time and had been in the night sky. The fact is no one really saw what they saw. The Bible just says, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Uh, Perhaps uh, some of the scriptures that we… someone's having a hard time. uh, This is going to pick up. Just trust me. It's going to pick up here, okay? Um, Some of us suggest or some have suggested that that maybe these scholars had studied the Hebrew Scriptures and that great scripture of Balaam's prophecy, and Balaam was sort of a sketchy prophet himself, Numbers 24, that prophesied that a star would come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. And so it was thought of the ancients that stars represented royalty or they represented special people in the world. And even in our day and age, people have a tendency to kind of go that way too. You know that you know God named stars after people and that kind of stuff. And and really, that's really not found in Scripture. We don't really have a sense of that. And yet, Balaam's prophecies, prophecy says that a scepter will rise, a star will come out of Jacob. And so maybe maybe this is what happened. But here's the point: we don't know what this was, but we know that it, whatever it was, it drew these stargazers to pick up everything they had and journey this immense journey all the way across the land from Persia, Babylon, all the way west to the land of Israel to look for this child king. That's amazing to me. You talk about faith. That's amazing. So let's just stop for a minute and just think about this in a timeless way. I'm suggesting that people who look for Jesus, sometimes their search begins with interests or passions that are not necessarily connected to God or His ways. Uh, And they might even be things that we didn't expect, things like a quiet desperation might begin someone's search, or a disease that enters their body might begin someone's search, or a loss may begin someone's search, or some heartache, or some hobby. There may be all kinds of crazy pursuits that wouldn't fit into what we would call a biblical category. Our men's director and pastor over discipleship, Mark Campbell, tells the story that he knows a guy that had been reading tarot cards. And if you know tarot cards, are sort of, you know, used often in the occult and it's sort of like, you know, sort of the woo, mystical, you know, you can read these cards and divine future and all this stuff. It's not biblical. We know it's not accurate. And yet someone, he told me that a friend had been reading tarot cards, not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus, and somehow he felt the tarot cards were leading him to get a Bible and read it for himself. So he got a Bible based on what he thought the tarot cards were saying, and he started reading the Bible, and he got saved. (laughs) So figure that out. I mean, I don't know. God uses all kinds of ways, ways that we wouldn't say, oh, that's the way I would do it. So don't write people off so quick, and don't be so fast to think that even in something that somebody is into, that God may not be actually using that as strange it would be to lead them to a place of knowing him i have a friend that loves playing basketball like i do he's an older guy like i am and he plays in a 50 and older uh, league it's a christian league and so he was telling me the story not too long ago he said there's a guy that i know that doesn't know christ and so I, but he loves basketball so i invited him to play with us so he started playing with us and uh, he tells me that you know he'd go to these basketball games they'd always have prayer before the game And they would chit-chat on the way home after the game. Sometimes they would ride together. And one night on his way to the game, he said to his friend, he goes, hey, look, I've been observing, you know, the way you guys play and how you treat each other and, you know, da 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 And he goes, "I, I just know there's something huge in my life that's not there. Something's missing that I think you have. And I need to know about what that really is and he had the opportunity just to share the gospel in very simple ways we're all lost we're all sinners outside of God's grace and just gave him the simple plan of salvation Jesus came he died he rose again from the grave and just in the w- in the car on the way to the game this guy says that's it it's Jesus I need Jesus so he gave his heart to Christ so you know it's like so just think about this for a minute how does how does God use things in our lives uh Uh, People come to Christ because of their love sometimes for sports and people that love sports that are Christ followers use that as a way of leveraging the gospel or a love for animals or a love for horseback riding or a love for motorcycles or a love for fishing or a love for boating or a love for fill in the blank. Leverage whatever it is that you do as a means to maybe introduce someone to Jesus Christ and recognize that people come to Christ Out of all kinds of walks, all kinds of backgrounds, because of a desire they have that God used to help them get on their way. There's something else I see about these folks. Their search may have brought them a great distance or taken considerable time. Now granted, the Magi had come a great distance to the land of Israel, but you could be on vacation in Africa and discover the amazing work of God. Or I've met international students who come from all over the world to the United States and right here in the Bay Area, and specifically to Cal State, East Bay, or Cal, or Berkeley, or Los uh excuse me, Cal, or Stanford, or Las Positas, or any number of places who want to learn English, and while they're here, they are introduced to Christ. That's a long journey. You know, last Saturday we had over a hundred scholars from China, who are a part of uh, two Christian clubs—one on Stanford and one at Cal Berkeley—and they've been coming to our production outreaches because the leaders of those groups know that whether we do Christmas or Easter, it's a way of introducing the, Christ, the Christian message to a group of people who are not familiar. They come from a country where it's illegal to be a Christian. And they have lots of propaganda saying that it's lies and it's fables and it's everything else. So, so they bring them. And we had, last Saturday, we had over 100 sitting in, in this auditorium watching the, the message of Christmas. And afterwards, I had the privilege of going up to the D3 up here where they had a little snack refreshment time. And I had the privilege of just talking about the program, why we do a program like this, talking a little bit more about the nuances and the details of the program, and then opening up to questions. And oh my goodness, the questions were incredible. How can we, who are scholars, someone would say through a translator, believe in miracles? or how can we who have been taught all along that there is no god begin to understand that there is a god and there's all these questions and it was dynamic and scriptures were being read and and I could just see and there were people there that the leaders told us that have been drawing coming learning more are investigating and how long will their journey take them who knows But the great news is, is that they're on the journey. And I believe that some of them are going to go back to their country as scholars at universities all around that country who are going to go back with the gospel of Jesus Christ in their hearts. This is amazing to me, that God uses distance or even great time. You know, I've talked to people that have come to Christ in their 70s or in their 80s. What were they doing all the years before that? God was preparing them. I've talked to people that said, I've wasted so much of my life. Having come to Christ so late in my life, it could have been so different. Well, yeah, it could have been different. But apparently in God's sovereign plan, it was perfect. God used all that in your life to bring you to the place of seeing that you needed a Savior. And nothing is wasted. God redeems it all. It's a mystery, isn't it? Here's another thing about folks like this, not only do they perhaps are, are sparked by an interest that doesn't seem biblical, they may have come a great distance or taken considerable time, their search may, be presented, uh, may, may have presented many obstacles. I mean, let's, let's not forget that, man, it must have been a crazy experience for them to travel all that distance. You can imagine the obstacles, mountains and trails, and wow, just to get to where this place was. Uh, but there's barriers in our lives in coming to the gospel too. I've listed a few to consider. Uh, Barriers might include disappointment with people, disappointment with churches, disappointment with pastors, disappointment with Christians in general, a broken relationship, a divorce, a loss of a child, a termination at work, homelessness, loneliness, or any other kind of list you might want to put in. Addiction, depression, obstacles, obstacles, But you know what? God gets us here. If there's a search in our heart that God has placed, we'll go through those obstacles because we'll be relentless until we finally see who Jesus is. Now, just listen to this for just a minute. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. These people remind us of God's sovereign role in our salvation. This is all about God's sovereignty. It's all about the way God saves. There's no other reason or way to explain why magi would come looking for and find Christ other than it was God's sovereign plan. There's no human reason. There's no initiation on the part of a person that could legitimize that. Here here are the two indisputable elements of our salvation. Number one, God draws us to Himself through something we didn't think He ever would. And number two, our interest is unquenchable until we finally meet Him. Now, that's a mystery. You talk to a person who's in the midst of their search, and they probably wouldn't say, I'm searching for Jesus. I've just got to find Jesus. That's probably not what they're saying. They're saying, my life is messed up. I'm in pain. I'm suffering. I'm looking around. This life doesn't make sense. There's got to be an answer, and they're pounding at the doorway of the entrance to the kingdom of heaven, and they don't even know it. And people that are searching for pleasure to fulfill that God-shaped void in our lives are doing the same thing. They don't even know that they're looking for the one who can ultimately save them. But because we're sinners, and we'll talk about this in a moment, because we're depraved, we don't intentionally go out looking for God. If we ever find ourselves actually looking for God and wanting His grace in our life and wanting what He can offer to us, That is the sheer mark of God's sovereign plan in salvation, period. And that's a beautiful thing. Some people look for Jesus and don't stop looking until they find him. This is a picture of our sovereign God and his salvation. Now let's talk about another person in this story. And that is the person of Herod. And I would consider here that some people look for Jesus behind a veil of hypocrisy. All right? Now what this means is, you look at Herod and he makes some Pretty interesting claims here. I mean, he says to the Magi, Hey, tell me where he is because I want to go worship him too. How many believe that that was sincere? (laughs) I mean, it just reeks with hypocrisy. Herod is not looking for Jesus to worship him, Herod is looking for Jesus to kill him. He wants to put him away. Now, people like this could be compared to King Herod. I've often said that before Christ, Shines his light in our hearts before our conversion experience. We're all like King Herod. Some of us disguise it better than others, but the reality is we're all like King Herod. We don't want any other king to be on the throne. Uh, Our search isn't really on finding Jesus, but doing away with him. We should do all that we can in life to prove that he doesn't exist. Prove that he's not worth to follow. Prove that he's, you know, a, a fake. And I meet people like that all the time, who have argument after argument, why they can't believe the Bible, why they shouldn't believe the Bible, why, why they believe that Jesus is just another religious leader. I mean, the list goes on and on and on about people that are looking for a legitimization of why they choose to reject Christ. They don't realize the reason they choose to reject Christ is because they are depraved. They have no moral ability. They're, they're like dead stones that cannot live apart from the grace and mercy of God. Herod was looking for a way to kill Jesus. Let's talk about Herod the Great. Do you know much about him? He took the throne under Caesar Augustus in 37 B.C. Uh, it was near the end of his reign. He was a suspicious, angry, vindictive, unpredictable, manipulative king. He's not Roman. He's Idomean. He's he comes from a despised people of the Jews. But he's so insecure, he wants the adulation and the praise of the Jews. So Herod was known for his amazing building projects. He built all throughout the Judean area and all throughout uh, the region that he was king over, uh, Herod was, and uh, he rebuilt the temple for the Jews in a beautiful edifice. And of course, this was one of the challenges that that come to us in the gospel writers about this big edifice being brought down in three days when Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. I mean, the Jews, in one sense, were thankful for what Herod did, but they despised him as a leader. And Herod was this, he was crazy. He was mentally unstable. Um, He, uh, upon taking his throne in Judea, he killed most of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council. Um, He killed his own wife and three of his own sons near the end of his life for fear that they would overcome and take the throne. Now this is all in history. You can read about Herod the Great. He was insane. So when it says, look at your Bibles where it says in verse 4, when he, when he had called, excuse me, verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. What that means is Herod was disturbed because there was this, uh-oh, there's this new king. But Jerusalem was disturbed because they saw Herod now disturbed. And whenever Herod got disturbed, it's kind of like when you're in a family with someone that's abusive, you know, Uh uh-oh, the person gets set off with something, everybody scatters, looks for, you know, looks for a place of safety because you set that person off and uh uh-oh, look what happens. And that's exactly what we find in verse 3. Jerusalem is quaking because of what's going on in Herod's life. And now think about how insecure Herod is. He hears that this child perhaps is born. And Herod's at the end of his reign and near the end of his life. He would have died just a few years after all this took place. Actually, not even a few years. Probably within 18 to 24 months, Herod is dead after this. And by, by the way, Herod had decreed uh, that all the religious leaders of Jerusalem would be put to death on his death. And thankfully, Josephus writes the historian, that that did not occur. That was abated by the next government that came in. Herod's sons. He broke up his kingship into parcels, and uh, we won't get into that. We'll see that in a couple of weeks as we continue in the book of Matthew. But the point I'm trying to make is this. Herod was this uh, uncontrollable, uh, uh, mentally ill person, and and the Magi sort of set him off. And, and all of this reminds us, reminds us of uh, people, it reminds us of of our lives in our depravity. These people remind us of our depravity. The Herods of this world remind us of our depravity. Depravity tells us that even with God, our, even with our God-given knowledge of who He is, and everybody's been given a God-given knowledge of who He is, Romans 1 tells us that, even with our God-given knowledge of who He is, we still view Him as our enemy. That's what depravity does. And that's why we all have this little bit of a Herod in us Uh, And our our enmity with God, our hatred toward God can turn us into absolute monsters. Before coming in conversion, before we come to a place of conversion, uh, we can disguise our depravity, we can actually put on the cloak of being a good person, but underneath it all is is this strangely dark soul that completely edges God out of our lives. You might even say a person that is depraved can even voice the language of, oh, you know, you ever hear something like this? I don't have anything against God. I just, you know, he's not, I just am not into that religious stuff. That's a real gentle way of saying, I hate God and he's not in my life. I mean, I know this is strong language and it's often not the language of evangelicalism that tends to lean more toward. God as having this sentimental love for everybody and everybody's okay. And he just, he like finds people that have merit in their life and he chooses them because he sees the potential in their life. That's not the gospel. The gospel says that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. And even though we mask our deadness, we put a lot of perfume on the stink and the stench of death in our lives. God still looks at our lives and he says, unless I shine my light on you, you are dead. It's like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's referring back to the creation account. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You see, God has to turn the light on. He's got to show us who he is. And until that happens, we just stay in this depravity. So that's a picture of Herod, and that's a picture of of our lives outside of Christ. And that should make us just want to worship the Lord all the more as followers of Christ, shouldn't it? To realize that it's God's grace and mercy that has pulled us out of our lives of depravity and sin. And while we don't deserve his love, we don't deserve his grace, he still gives us he comes to us in spite of ourselves and He offers us the free gift and He turns the light on in our heart and He draws us to Himself so that we also can have a relentless search and find Him as our Savior. Okay, so there's some people that look for Jesus and don't stop looking till they find Him. Some people look for Jesus but their search is veiled behind hypocrisy. Here's a third. Some people appear to be looking for Jesus but they're really not looking for Him at all. This is the scariest of them all here. Because with the Magi, you got guys that are just, they are, they are relentless. And with Herod, you've got a guy that is clearly not a worshiper of God. He's masking his depravity. But here, here you've got these religious leaders. Look at verse 4. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, that's Herod, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. Now the priests there, the chief priests, those are the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, those are the Pharisees. And Matthew's really clever here in that he invites both these groups, these religious sects of Judaism into this dialogue. And perhaps at first reading, you don't understand what's going on here, so let me explain what's going on. Matthew's describing the fact that Herod is pulling in the two faction warring groups of Judaism. These two groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, hated each other. They did not get along. They didn't agree. They weren't on the same page. It would be similar, not exactly, but it'd be similar to say that Republicans and Democrats came together perfectly, you know. Now, what Herod is doing, think about it. Herod is saying, look, if I want to get a straight answer, I'm going to pull these two groups in because if I get the same answer from both of them, there's a higher probability that it's right. You see, what Herod's doing is he's trying to figure out a way to do away with Jesus. So, he's going to cross all Of the t's he can and dot all the i's he can and then it even tells us in verse 7 that he pulls the magi secretly again on another occasion to find out exactly when the time and the star appeared so herod was actually already concocting a plan to put to exterminate the life of christ we'll see a little bit about that next week but this is an amazing part of the story because here these religious leaders they say they agree well the answer is simple In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet was written, has written. And they quote Micah chapter five, verse two. Uh, Let me talk a little bit about these kinds of people and who they are. Uh, First of all, these are people who know God's word. These are people who are familiar with God's teachings. They can answer questions. They can quote Bible verses. They can tell you about the church and about the life of Jesus. They might even tell you some good and accurate things. But the problem is they have only knowledge. No life, no power, no hope, and most of all, no Jesus. These Pharisees and scribes, teachers of the law, point out to us and they remind us of the people, or the, these people remind us of the difference between being religious and having a relationship with the living God. Between being religious and a relationship with the living God. You know, I've, I've met a lot of people that are religious people. Uh, religious people um, are often quick with answers. They, they can kind of walk us through things. But when it comes down to really surrendering, living our lives, living their lives for the one who is truly the king, no. It's all for show or it's not even for show it's just their own self concocted religious experience and there's all kinds of people all around from every walk of life that are in this so I guess the cool thing about it for me as I look at this story as I go that really hasn't changed the Pharisees and the scribes of Jesus day they're still around today there's still people today that wear the cloak of religion who have no hope, no life, no spontaneous joy, no sense of the worship of God in their lives because it's all a religion and it's all rote, it's just going through the motions. And there might be someone here in a crowd like this today, that that's you. And listen to the Spirit of God, if He would use this message, this text to reveal that this this is you. I find it so ironic that these guys that knew the scriptures, there's no indication from either Matthew's account or Luke's account, the only two gospel writers that describe and and give to us some of the detail of the birth of Christ, that these guys are never in the scene at at actually finding the Christ. They're not there. And I think to myself, wow. Here's guys that knew where Jesus would be born, where the Messiah would be born, but they couldn't go, watch this, how far from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? Five miles. They couldn't get out of their holy tower, their ivory tower, to come down five miles to just snoop around a little bit and see where these magi were going and see if there was anything to this story because after all, the scriptures, according to them, were the precious word of God. And yet there was no evidence that the precious Word of God moved them to action. And that's what religious people are like. They have lots of this, but they have nothing here. There's no movement. There's no pathos. There's no life. And so take heed and listen and encu- encourage your own heart that if God has been so merciful to show you your own depravity and give you life in Christ, that we would pray for those who are stuck in religious systems And that God would show His mercy to them too. All of this comes about that when finding Jesus, a person becomes a different, it becomes different. Um, And I see this in verse 11, which is where we kind of land the plane now. Um, And here's, here's what they become. They become worshipers, spending their lives to give and serve their king give to and serve their king. And we see the Magi enter back in here in verse 11. Uh, it says, actually, earlier on, verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child. By the way, little bit of a note here, and don't want to make a big deal about it, but you know, most of our Christmas nativity scenes show the shepherds and the wise men, and you know, there's three wise men, and then there's the shepherds, and then there's Mary and Joseph and the baby in the little cradle. Well, here Matthew points out something that might show something different because he doesn't use the word baby as does Luke when the shepherds found Jesus. He uses the word that describes a child. When they found the child, a toddler perhaps, or almost a toddler, he may have been around for a little while. Uh, In fact, Matthew uses the word house, not stable or cave like Luke uses. So maybe they had moved out of where Jesus had been born and into a house. And we really don't know how much longer it was that the Magi got there. But it appears that the Magi came at a different time than the shepherds had come. Hope that doesn't ruin anybody's Christmas story. (laughs) Don't go home and just like toss those things off your, you know. (laughs) That's wrong. Because we don't really know. But just a little textual point there. And it kind of makes sense with what we're going to see next week, and I'll just kind of hold a little tension there, that Jesus may have been a little bit further along. But what I don't want you to miss as we close today is that what this whole scene is about is about not just finding him, but worshiping him. And did you notice that when they saw the child with his mother, Mary, they bowed down and worshiped him? They worshiped Jesus. They did not worship Mary. Now, I say that because some of us have been raised in religious backgrounds that were taught to worship Mary that's not in the bible not trying to be unfair or unkind Mary was an amazing person and we have much to extol about the life of Mary but never in the scriptures is Mary to be worshiped and and Matthew points this out because Jesus is the main the main person in this scene. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh. Some have suggested that the gifts represented the life of Christ. Gold, his royalty. Incense, his intercessory priesthood. Myrrh, his sacrificial death. And those are beautiful beautiful things and they could very well have been. Maybe God was weaving into that story a way for us to see and a way for them to see and for all humanity to see that this is the life that Jesus would be. A life of royalty, true kingship, a life of intercessory prayer. He is our true priest, high priest, and the one who would sacrifice and give his life for us. But what we're going to learn next week in Matthew's account, that this actually becomes the treasure trove that funds the trip to Egypt and back. So if worship, God advanced and protected the child and his family so that he could escape the wrath and the tyranny of Herod. We'll pick it up next week with that. We've come to worship the Lord this morning. And if you have, if that's been your heart's desire, then you're like the Magi. And you're going to keep being like the Magi. You're going to keep worshiping Him, following Him, and trusting Him with your life. Now would be a good time just to enter into that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for this amazing book, this Gospel of Matthew. Thank you that we can study it and learn from it. Thank you that in today's text we see some simple portraits of individuals that uh, looked for you. And we give you praise this morning for your grace and your mercy and your sovereign plan of choosing some of us out of our depravity out of our undeserved relationship with you and into, into a life A life that has been blessed and given full expression through Jesus himself. Lord, thank you that we are heirs of Christ. Thank you that we belong to you through faith. And we'll never get old. We'll never, it'll never get old in our hearts to declare that truth. No matter how old or young we are, we revel in the fact that you came and you died for lost sinners. And all of us see ourselves like the Apostle Paul as the greatest of sinners, nobody worse than us. We're all stained by depravity. So Lord, thank you for your grace this morning. Lord, if you brought someone to this service today that you wanted to kind of wake up and shine your light on, then Lord, we give you praise for that. And for others who are visiting out of town, maybe followers of Christ, maybe this would have encouraged them to go back and look at their homes, look at their their places of ministry with a new vigor and a new desire to share the great and glorious gospel with people. And help us all, Lord, today to leave this place and into our homes and into our neighborhoods and into our places of community with a, a renewed joy in our hearts for the worship of the one true Savior of the world. Jesus, we love you, and we worship you now. And Lord, even with these gifts that we are about to bring, we pray your touch on many who are coming out of lives of of alcoholism and drug addiction and homelessness and and so many problems. But Lord, again, you're using those things to lead many to you. So we thank you, Lord. We praise your holy name. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. amen. I'm going to ask our ushers to make their way forward. We've still got plenty of time in the service, so I'm going to ask you just to hold steady. We're going to worship the Lord with musical song right now and also with this offering. If this is a time where you need to give your life to Jesus Christ, you can pray right where you sit. You can confess you need a Savior and let him, ask him in faith, ask him to come into your life, repenting of sin, following him. He will. So let's worship the Lord, shall we? Lord Jesus, what a privilege to worship you and now with these gifts... We pray your blessing and may the response that we bring to our, in our hearts to you right now be pleasing, your Holy Spirit, your life in us, in Jesus' name, amen.